Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chodner. My guest today is David Frum, a senior editor at The Atlantic and the author of a new book, Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. A former George W. Bush staffer and well-known neoconservative, Frum has become obsessed over the past couple years with Donald Trump's assault on American norms and institutions and the threat he represents, he being Donald Trump, not David Frum, to American democracy. David Frum joins me now from New York City. Hey, thank you for having me. I considered illegally leaving jury duty to make this podcast, so I hope you bring your A-game today. Um, I'll do my best. Although I must say that the last chapter of the book um, ends with a note from a reader or begins with a note from a reader who has said he was inspired by previous articles I'd written not to skip out on jury duty. So I don't know if you've got, gotten the message on that. I, I, I clearly did not read the book uh, as as, <laughs> as well as I should have. I'm not getting the right message from it. So let me ask you, I, I want to get to the book, but I want to ask you something that I actually saw that you wrote today and you've written a version of before uh, and you say a version of it uh, several times. And I'm going to read you the quote. You say, maybe you do not much care about the future of the Republican Party. You should. Conservatives will always be with us. If conservatives become convinced that they cannot win democratically, they will not abandon conservatism. They will reject democracy. Can you expand on that for for a minute and uh, connect it to what you think is going on with conservatism in America today? I worry a lot. I think you worry a lot about democratic breakdown. When, When you worry about that, we're always inspired to think of the spectacular examples uh, from the 1930s. But really, when democratic breakdown has taken place in more normal places, uh, and especially when it has occurred in the United States, and it has, um, it is because people with resources become frightened of the that democratic competition will be um, to, will, they will not be able to win, and they will lose in and in losing, they will then lose assets that they have that they value very highly. And they then begin rewriting the game so that they are not at risk of losing. That's what happened in the American South after Reconstruction. To some degree, that's what happened in the cities of the Northern United States uh, in the 1920s and 30s after the mass immigration. And I think it's a little bit what has happened in a lot of American states um, since 2010, and especially since 2014. So I guess what I'm wondering is, is this something, though, that you, David Frum, would have said about conservatism 30 years ago? I mean, you're bringing up the American South, which was, uh, you know, the uh, Jim Crow and stuff, which was more than 30 years ago in the Civil War, which is obviously more than 30 years ago. But do do you think that something about your idea of what conservatism is or how conservatives conservatives behave has changed? Uh, I have never been a proponent of the starry-eyed theory of uh, American history. I I think I'm pretty aware of the dark possibilities. Uh, That's one of the reasons I've always been, as long as I've been writing, an immigration skeptic, because I am a conservative, maybe in the first place, because I worry so much about the problems of of political stability. And maybe it's my Canadian origins. I, I think Americans flatter themselves a lot about their own country's political stability and blot out of history the ways in which it has been unstable. Um, I spend a couple couple of months a year, a big chunk of my time, um, in a part of Canada settled by the losers of the American Revolution. And their names, their family names, their street names are are everywhere. Um, uh, It's just part of the way I grew up to remember that America was born in civil war. 1776 was a civil war. Um, And civil, uh, civil war is always a possibility in any society. Where do you think we are now, 364 days in, a fourth of the way in, or maybe an eighth of the way in, maybe a 20th of the way in? Who knows how long this is going to go on? But um, where do you think we are versus where you thought we would be? And um, how would you sort of appraise the first year of Trumpism? 
Well, let me just appraise where we are without giving myself gold stars or um, uh, demerit points. Um, I'll, I'll, here's some places I, that I think we are. First, um, we are we know way more about the Russia scandal than we did a year ago, and than I ever imagined probably we would. Um, we don't know everything. What we know is so dark. Um, so disturbing. Uh, I think it's to qualify as the most severe espionage scandal in American history. And yes, I include the Rosenbergs. Um, and there may be maybe more still still to come. Uh, what we have been um, what has been amazing to me is how little practical political impact those revelations have had. Um, and I imag- I don't imagine that even that if there are even greater revelations that they will have even more any any more impact than we've already had. Um, we have seen, um, as I predicted at the beginning of the article I wrote a year ago about Donald Trump or published a year ago, uh, an, a ro- robust economy um, that is now at last beginning to um, boost wages in many parts of uh, in many parts of the country for many many people, um, and there will shortly be a, t- a tax cut that will translate those rising wages into even higher purchasing power for a lot of people. Um, I have to believe that that will have some upward effect on Donald Trump's popularity. It, it's always done in the past, and he's starting from such a low base. He is he's more likely to go up than than to go down from where he from where he is now. Um, the president's attacks on institutions and on legality um, have been more blatant and less effective than I might have thought. Uh, I I thought he'd be a little stealthier about this. I mean, to come right out there and denounce the FBI that was something I did not imagine he would do. Uh, on the other hand, he has been well, he's been. He's had some successes uh, perverting uh, the Department of Justice, Maine Justice. He's been less successful at interfering with the work of the FBI uh, than, than I might might have feared. And he's been less successful in corrupting the U.S. attorney's offices as well. You mentioned the FBI, the, the lack of success he's had. Do you view that as a consequence of him being incompetent and not a strategic thinker? Or do you view it as a consequence of this is a guy who just doesn't have – he has authoritarian instincts. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But he doesn't sort of have a plan or an idea of undermining democracy in some specific way. So it's not that he's incompetent. It's that he just doesn't even think in those terms. He just thinks about what's in front of him and who cares how American yeah. democracy is doing. I, I think Donald Trump is quite wily. Um, I think to the extent that Michael Wolff has uh, persuaded um, large – convinced large numbers of people that Trump is a drooling, senile imbecile, he, he has not – done anybody any favors, nor has he reported accurate. I think Trump is wily. Um, I, I don't, uh, he has authoritarian instincts. He has no ideology of any kind, but he hates any kind of restraint. Uh, you give him a restraint and he will break through it. I, mean, I always think what is profoundly symbolic here is uh, that moment at NATO headquarters where McMaster literally stood him in front of the monument to Article 5 in the new NATO headquarter, had the Article 5 sentence, just read this, sir, and Trump read the whole speech and cut that sentence. Maybe because of his Russian sympathies, more likely he just doesn't like being told what he can and cannot do. Um, What I think has been uh, protective to some degree of the institutions today is Donald Trump has a very shrewd intuition for individual weaknesses and how to bully and domineer over individual people. But he's less good at figuring out systems and finding the weak point of a system and how to manipulate a system. Um, he's wily enough that he, I, I think he will eventually learn, and he certainly um, has the impulse to try. But it, it is harder to um, corrupt the whole of the FBI than it is to bully one deputy attorney general, as he has successfully bullied the deputy attorney general. 
Right. Well, let me let me just uh, something you said about him having no ideology at all. I I definitely believe that a year and a half ago. I'm not sure that I do. I think that he has a strain of kind of America first nationalism, which I was more cynical about him believing, which I sort of believe that, you know, you read accounts of meetings about NAFTA and I don't know what he's going to do where he just keeps returning to, you know, the same kind of nationalist core issues. The way he talks about uh, race, which I think we knew he was a racist for a very long time going back to the birtherism stuff. But it does seem to be a core of his thinking in a way that maybe I underestimated. And so I don't know if I would say anymore that he has absolutely no ideology. I do think there's something there. He's got impulses and prejudices and, and bigotries and resentments. Uh, an ideology, Remember, let's always remember that term began as an insult, not a compliment, uh, and not as a neutral term either. An ideology is a way- Dreyfus, is that when, was that when it came about? The term actually began to circulate um, in the early 19th century, and, and hmm. uh, the Emperor Napoleon was the person who popularized the term. He didn't coin it, and he, but he meant it disdainfully. Um, and what ideology was, was a way of grouping together ideas into idea sets, uh, so you, you have a bunch of ideas about free trade, therefore it's going to follow that you have a bunch of ideas about how parliament should be organized, therefore, and so on. And in Napoleon's view, you, well, he wanted to pick and choose, that he didn't know why he had to be told by liberals, as the, ideolog the ideologists he disliked then were, why he, he had to take, he couldn't take some from column A and nothing from column B. So in Donald Trump's case, I mean, when I say he doesn't have an ideology, his ideas don't necessarily go together. Right. So he's, he's very skeptical uh, of, of trade. Um, but uh, he doesn't care enough about it to understand how it works. I mean, just the other day, he tweeted out that, uh, that if the wall costs $20 billion, you can uh, take the $20 billion out of, and he then made up a big number for Mexico's trade surplus, which I think he said was like $72 billion, and it's nothing like that, but it doesn't matter for these purposes. And you and he think, my God, he thinks you can, a trade surplus is like a fiscal account. and You could take $20 billion of cash for the government out of, I mean, that's, he doesn't care enough about his trade views. I mean, Patrick Buchanan would never have made that mistake because um, I mean, his economic views, his trade views are, were very primitive, but he at least understood how the basic accounting worked. And Donald Trump doesn't, doesn't do that. I, I agree with you in that sense that he's uninformed. He doesn't understand these things beyond a very surface level. I, I guess what I had been under the impression of a couple years ago was that Essentially, the last person in the room to tell him something can convince him of something. And I think there's some way in which that's true, at least in the very short term. But I also think around issues like trade and nationalism and around racial issues, he does keep coming back to these sort of core parts of himself. Now, maybe as you say, that's just petty prejudices. It's not something that we want to deem an ideology. But I definitely think that that's an aspect of him that was underestimated by a lot of people. I don't think he has political ideas. Um, if you ask Jeff Sessions, had Jeff Sessions somehow become president of the United States, would never have been interested in building the wall. Because if, if your job is to reduce the flow of, of illegal immigrants in the United States, if that's the thing you really want to do, there could not be a worse return on investment than building the wall. Um, as Jeff Sessions knows, Donald Trump may or may not know, Jeff Sessions, somewhere between a quarter and a third of illegal immigrants in the United States come by airplane. Uh, and overstay, they arrive on a visa and overstay their visas. Um, you could build a properly functioning entry-exit visa for a lot less than the cost of a wall. 
That's what you would do. Um, you would uh, have um, you you would have enforcement at the workplace. Uh, Jeff, these are the ideas that people who who think about the immigration issue a lot and have Jeff Sessions's point of view. These are the things they would emphasize. Donald Trump can't be bothered. Um, he cares about, and he's prepared to trade away. Everything Jeff Sessions cares about in order to get the wall because the wall is part has become now a part of his ego. He doesn't care whether it works. He doesn't care whether it makes sense. Uh, he doesn't care whether it'll, you know, it'll achieve the things that Donald Trump claims for it. He just wants to do it because he said he would do it. It's an, ex, it's an extension of his will. That's what I mean by not having, when I say I don't have an, he doesn't have an ideology, but he doesn't, he doesn't think how do I rationally connect the ends I supposedly have to the means I have. But that doesn't mean he's an all-purpose idiot, because when he is dealing with things where he does have ideas, self-protection, uh, self-enrichment, um, the magnification of his own power, he can be very wily and very effective. You mentioned that you were somewhat of an immigration hawk earlier, and I'm curious what you've made of, let's put the wall aside, what you've made of this administration's immigration policy, which uh, by the time this airs, God knows where it will be, but what you've seen so far um, in terms of the increase in deportations and um, uh, the removal of protections from a couple hundred thousand Salvadorans and um, uh, potentially uh, the removal of protections from the so-called dreamers. From my point of view, what what, he, what Trump is doing is touching every single hot button issue that will make it impossible to achieve the substantial reforms um, that I think are most important. So from, from my point of view, the most important things are first, meaningful enforcement of labor standards, um, which means above all, effective workplace enforcement. And I, will, I can go into details if you want about what that means. Secondly, an, a reduction in overall numbers. One, the United States received almost 2 million immigrants in 2016, uh, tying with 1998 as the peak year on record. The percentage of the poor and born is about to peak pass the 1913 level. I say this as someone who's foreign born myself. Um, uh, you want to bring those numbers down. Uh, you want to rebalance them so there's less family uh uh, reunification and more emphasis on highly skilled immigration. And contrary to what the president thinks, that means you'll probably have more people from India and Africa and uh, probably rather fewer from Latin America. That's the main sort of distributional effect. So those are the things I want to do. And I understand that in order to do those things, you're going to need a pretty substantial national consensus. And that means that there are things that people on the other side of this debate care about a lot at, that you're, you're going to have to trade away in order to achieve those things. So you don't say, first we stop DACA. And then we do the rest because DACA is the thing that makes it possible to get the kinds of reforms I want to see as a restrictionist through Congress, that DACA has to be part of the settlement uh, because they have strong protectors in the American political system, that population. Um, they're a very sympathetic and photogenic population. If you're, if you're pulling people away who've lived in the country for 30 years, you're going to so alienate public opinion. But that's part of a, 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 but let me say one more thing about this before I go on and to descend into the technicalities. During the campaign, um, I had a friend who was involved with the Trump campaign who was leaning on me to be less hostile to Trump than I was. And he pointed out, you know, Donald Trump talks about many of the things about, immig that, about immigration that you do. And indeed, but for him, these things would nowhere be on the agenda. We'd be with dealing with Jeb Bush, who thinks the opposite of you. Why don't you support him? And, and I said to this, this person, the reason I've thought about immigration in the way that I do is in order to keep people like Donald Trump away from power. Um, I don't see immigration as a way to elect Donald Trump. I see Donald Trump as the threat that we face if we don't come up with an immigration policy that the society can sustain. We'll get back to my conversation with David Frum in just a second. Last night, um, 
Trump announced the fake news awards, which uh, he'd been uh, he'd been hyping up on Twitter as one does with award shows, and uh, gave out awards to uh, various journalists for um, you know what he called their fake news. Um, illustrious winners include pe- include people like Paul Krugman, uh, who also has won a Nobel Prize, who's probably the only person who's won both. I, I guess my question for you is. I I think that you and I are both uh, worried about Trump's attacks on the press and what they mean. But when I see things like this, it's very hard not to laugh or make light of them. And I'm wondering what you think the sort of proper reaction is to this stuff. And just to generally, Trump is just so ridiculous. And and let me just say before yeah. before you answer, Masha Gessen, who's covered a lot of the same subjects you have about Trump and autocracy, has basically said, you know, autocrats are often seen as buffoons. That doesn't mean that we should uh, underestimate them, which yeah. is true. At the same time, Trump is objectively a buffoon. And so I, w- I was wondering where you sort of fall on this spectrum. Um, the, Krugman, the Krugman fake news award and the other fake news are all very comical and absurd until some bu- poor deluded person like the Pizzagate um, shooter shows up outside Paul Krugman's house and puts a bullet through one of his windows. Uh, We have to have a model in our minds of how modern authoritarianism will work. It will not look like the mass economy authoritarianism of the 1930s. Um, You're not, obviously in the United States, it's not possible for a president to mobilize some police force to repress his critics. I mean, that is so far over the horizon of uh, even if things go as badly as they could do, that'll be one of the extremely last things that will happen. It will never come to that. But what you can do is terrorize and intimidate people with the threat of pri- by inciting private violence against them. And I think many of the journalists who have been on the Trump beat, many of the CNN journalists, some of the women, um, have reported they find themselves afraid all the time. They, they encounter threats. Um, they, people follow them around. Not agents of the state. Not just people, just Trump Twitter followers. And one of these days, somebody's going to get hurt. It's so, and then it, then it won't be any kind of joke at all. I want to talk about you for a minute rather than, rather than Trump, um, which is that I think one of the lessons of Trump, uh, given how awful he's acted and how 35 to 40% of the country is willing to put up with it is that partisanship is a very, um, uh, very strong. Um, it acts very strongly on people. And so as someone who follows your Twitter feed and knew you a little bit back in Washington when I lived there, um, it does seem to me that you've changed in other ways too um, now that you've kind of made this big change of um, distancing yourself from the Republican Party and from the Republican Party's president in very strong terms. And so I'm feeling, I'm wondering like, do you feel that that partisanship in a different way that by sort of being off the team, you notice some of your other views have started to change in some way? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, if I, first I should stress, I remain a registered Republican um, and I remain a, a very conservative person in a lot of ways, both personally and um, ideologically. Uh, but here's some things that I think do happen. I think one of the things that Donald Trump does, because Donald Trump is so cruel, um, he magnifies things that might have seemed like the ordinary frictions of life. Uh, and you suddenly think they, he makes them big. And you really have, you really can't not look at them. I and mean, when the president of the United States demeans people in ways that, you know, it's one thing when Tucker Carlson does it on his white nationalist Fox News show. Um, that's bad enough. But when, when the president of the United States does these things, 
uh, it, they, they, it's like a magnifying mirror and you really have to think about them. Um, so yeah, there's some things. Um, and, and I think part of it is, you know, things happen in my, my own life. I, I now have, um, a, a, a daughter who's just entering the workforce. Um, and I hear stories from her of some of the things that, uh, that she's been subjected to. Um, and so, you know, when you come along at the, this moment of, of revulsion against the way women are treated in the workforce, I, I I think partly the magnifying effect of the president and the micro fact of having a daughter of age to be the target of such things, that things like that have an impact on, on my thinking, sure. You're right. No, I mean, you know, just following your Twitter feed, the way you talk about gender issues, about gun control, about even things like the Iran nuclear deal. I, and I'm not saying you didn't always have positions on things like gun control that were maybe slightly different than the no. G- Oh, on, well, gun control, that, that's maybe an example of how it works. So gun control uh, was an issue where um, but, uh, I have never understood or liked the kind of politics of the NRA. Um, and especially the part of it that is about, well, we need the guns so that private citizens can overthrow the state. Uh, you know, I've always taken the view, uh, we all pay a lot of taxes so that those so that Cliven Bundy has zero chance against the United States Army. And if the day ever comes when Cliven Bundy might have a chance, then we need to pay more taxes so that he he won't have a chance. Um, but I, before Newtown, I just never talked about it. it. It just was part of the party bargain that other you know there there are things I cared a lot about um, that other people maybe cared less about, and they went along with those things. And in return, I kept my um, lip buttoned about about gun violence. Um, Newtown. Um, again, you see it through the prism of your own children. Um, that one for me, I, I just, I, I, there's something in me that's just, okay, I, I cannot be on the sidelines on this issue. Um, and by the way, I just want to stress my, my views on that question, by the way, are not so, you know, if, if I actually, somebody said, okay, here's a piece of paper, write down the David from gun control regimen. It wouldn't be so very restrictive. Um, but um, you know, I, I, it wouldn't be actually the worst nightmare of most of the people belong to the N, uh, NRA. Uh, you know, I, in my world, you, you should be able to, if you need a shotgun to shoot duck, it should be a pretty easy thing to get. You need a deer rifle, that should be pretty pretty easy to get. Um, but uh, can you see yourself, I mean, you know, if if in 20, you know, if, if 2020, I guess probably 2024, you know, Marco Rubio is running for president kind of on the the sort of conservative line that he ran in in this time. Can you sort of see going to work for another Republican administration like that? Or do you sort of feel like something within you has switched in some way and that it's hard to imagine that? Um, I don't think it would happen. I think I, I think um, I think the Republican Party is going to be – the divide between those who took one side and those who took the other side of this debate will be a long-lasting one. And and I think the people – if, if you're – I mean, if you're thinking about getting a job in a future Republican administration, everything depends on your birthday. Um, people who think the way I do, if you're 32, you will absolutely be in the ascendancy in the Republican administrations before your time is done. Um, I'm 57, about to turn 58. For the next, for the rest of my working career, uh, th- these are going to be the wrong views for future Republican administrations. Um, I get a lot of positive feedback from people on the liberal side, and as a human being, you respond to that. But I always have the feeling that we're talking different languages. Um, and even when we're agreeing about things, we're agreeing about things for different reasons and in, in, in different ways. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't speak liberal as my first language. I, I noticed, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you, I mean, I, I know that there are a lot of liberals who admire your writing on Trump, but also... Uh, 
are still very angry about your support for the Iraq war and kind of feel like, oh, whatever David Frum says, I don't want to listen to it. And I, I'm wondering how you feel about that attitude. And also looking back on Iraq, you said you thought immigration was one of the things that brought us people like Trump. Do you, do you feel like Iraq and the sort of societal convulsions that it led to uh, both around the world and here uh, played any role in the rise of someone like Trump? Um, I think the... Uh um, the, I, I accept the conventional things about what happened to the views of the slowdown of the American economy. I lay a lot of stress as much on the health effects of what's happening uh, to non-college people as the economic effects. I think Bush v. Gore is an important milestone in, in set uh, the, making convincing a lot of people the game is played more ruthlessly now than ever before. The Iraq War is certainly part of that story. Um, so was the disappointment. Uh, d- disappointment with people with the weak response of the economy to the Obama stimulus. There are a lot of milestones. Um, as to the personal question, I, I, it's not its not even a qu- thing I, I, I worry about very much. I mean, go around, I ask questions, I gather information, I organize my thoughts, I type them, I send them out there. People respond. People, uh, the customer's always right on these things. So some people say, I don't want to read what you said because I don't like um, the the Iraq war. Others will say, you know, I, I don't care about the Iraq war. I just don't like that look on your face. So I'll never listen to you. Um, and, uh, you know, or your last name reminds me of somebody I didn't like. And I, I what, listen, don't listen. Uh, you know, you're either going to listen or you're not going to listen. It's not for me to tell people why they should, why they should listen to me. Um, the Iraq war, um, the, the thing that is a, a true quandary for me about it is, you know, I neither want to, um, uh, you know, I neither want to be untrue to the past. I supported it. Uh, on the other hand, I, I, there's also a risk of I did. <laughs> if I, part of telling the truth about the past is to face the exit, the limits on one's role. I mean, so I can't tell t- emphasize that point too much because then it sounds like I'm you know disavowing responsibility. But uh, I I would not exactly be a member of the inner cabinet in those days. Um, last question for you. Uh... Is there anything in terms of going forward that would be a bigger, uh, bigger of bigger importance to American democracy in your mind than Democrats taking over at least one House of Congress in 2018 and then in 2019 beginning proper oversight or some sort of partisan, but also hopefully some sort of proper oversight of the Trump administration? Um, that that will do some good, um, but understand um, the limits um, first. At- as Democrats do that, uh, Republicans will rally more tightly uh, to President Trump, not less. Uh, and I think there is a real risk of Democrats veering off into far left precincts that mean that will mean that their that their successes in 2018 may be a prelude to disappointments and failures in 2020. We saw in the Bernie Sanders ca- uh, campaign and among his supporters, not in Bernie Sanders himself, some of the the ang- the divisive anger, um, men against women. Um, and yes, some racial anger too, uh, that um, not unreminiscent of the Donald Trump campaign. I think this is um, why I keep emphasizing that we need to study systems of power, not quirks of personality, because Donald Trump may decide tomorrow to spend more time with his golf and indulge himself more in filet fish I, I don't think when he does that, that he will take all the ills that he's exploited away with him. Okay, so then, what is the most important short-term, short-term uh, thing to happen to begin to begin this process of bringing the country back to a healthier place? I, I, I look for some new values to spread um, in the country, and for 
citizens, I see Donald Trump in some ways as like one of those oncoming trucks that you see when you're dozing a little bit at the wheel and, and the, the adrenaline of having to react I'm like, and pull away and pull yourself upright gets you, gets you safely home. Um, I think people need to be less sectarian. There are individual changes, changes here. Um, uh, one last story from, from the book. To where I, in the conclusion, I mentioned an experience I'd had. Um, I was at a panel and somebody came up to me afterwards and didn't like what I'd been saying um, and said, you know, uh, people on you know, his side, we need to we need to learn from tough. We need to be as as tough and as ruthless. We need to play the game in the way that he did. And he went on and you know take no prisoners. And and I said that's I just can't disagree with that more. Um, if you emulate Trump, you don't defeat him. You just replace him. I I worry about that. Uh, David Frum, the book is Trumpocracy: The Corruption of the American Republic. Thank you so much for coming on the program today. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs with help today from Jesse Nichols. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. We've had some really great suggestions in there, so please email me. If you need more to listen to from Slate, check out Whistle Stop. In this podcast for fans of presidential campaign history, John Dickerson of Slate's Political Gab Fest revisits a moment from the American Quadrennial Carnival. Hear about the grand speeches, the emergency strategies, the baby kissing, and the backstabbing that make each presidential election cycle so fascinating. Whistle Stop is a dose of presidential campaign history connected magically to some part of current events. Download and subscribe to the Whistle Stop wherever you find your podcasts.